Let's pray. Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you uh, that when we have to deal with difficult topics, you're not intimidated, um, and you know exactly what needs to be done tonight, and so we give you permission to do that. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that we would see Jesus and that we would see your love for us and seeking for us to be prepared for that crisis that is soon to come on this earth. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, as you can tell on the title for this evening's message, uh, this is not going to be flowers and sunshine, uh, but I believe that the gospel uh, can be preached even in moments like this. So I pray for your prayers, ask for your prayers as we address a difficult but important topic, the mark of the beast. And so we'll be addressing the key players, what the mark is, what the mark isn't, and what God is doing to prepare his people for that coming crisis. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 17 and 23, we're talking about the mark of the beast. Uh, First of all, it says here in verse 17 that those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. And skipping to verse 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So a beast in Bible prophecy represents an earthly kingdom or power, right? So if we're talking about the mark of the beast, it's going to be something that's done by an earthly power here. Um, And we established uh, that in our previous presentation on the Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 13, there are two key players that are both represented as beasts. And so we're going to uh, recognize that in both of those texts. But I also want to go to the reference here briefly that kind of introduces the terminology of the mark of the beast. It's found in Revelation chapter 14. We'll come back to this and go deeper, but just to kind of get an introduction to the language. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9 says this, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So this is where that language is introduced in the text. Okay, And what's alluded to here is that one of the beasts in Revelation 13 has set up its mark, and the other is working with it to enforce that. So what the mark of the beast is and how that works, we'll get to in just a moment. Um, But I want to, again, reestablish the first beast that we've talked about before and then identify the second that we'll kind of walk through. So it'll be pretty linear, hopefully, this evening. So Revelation chapter 13 is where we see these beasts. Revelation chapter 13, I would encourage you to read through this whole chapter again after this evening's presentation, get larger context. In Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says this, uh, speaking of John, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now we addressed these again in a previous presentation. Uh, The same beasts that are mentioned in Daniel 7 are mentioned here, but in reverse order. John's looking back in history. Daniel's looking forward in history. Same premise, though. They're, They're sister chapters. So this beast we've already identified as the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church in a previous presentation, not the membership, but the institution itself. But when it says that this rises up out of the sea, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15 equates that body of water where the harlot sits as a multitude of people. And that harlot of Revelation 17 and this beast in Revelation 13 are one and the same. They're just different word pictures that are used. So... 
What's implied here is that a kingdom is going to rise up in a populated area, what we know today is the populous region of Europe. And this beast was unique in a blending of church and state during its most um, prolific reign for those 1260 years that we talked about before, during the Dark Ages. The church was using the power of the state to carry out its bidding and to persecute those who didn't agree with them, right? And history is filled with testimonies of this very circumstance. We're told scholars give it a conservative estimate of 50 million people died during this timeline who were just dissidents, people who didn't agree with the religious institution and were directly dealt with through the means of the state. So the Bible says here that it's got its power and authority from the dragon himself, uh, is what it says here at the end of verse 2. Now, um, the dragon has always been in the business of using force, coercion, deception. So the fact that this beast is working in that way makes sense, really, right? It's doing what it was taught from uh, the source from which it springs. But going to verse 3 of Revelation 13, it says this, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. Now, again, we talked about this in our previous presentation, that in 1798, when uh, the General Berthier, on behalf of Napoleon, came and took the Pope off of his throne, he eventually died in captivity, and this global reign and uh, this seemingly indestructible institution, overnight, uh, things changed. And so that deadly wound was given at that stage, but it says, towards the close of prophetic history and the end of time, that that wound is going to be healed. And all the world will marvel and follow the beast. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast. So when they're worshiping the beast, they don't realize they're actually worshiping the dragon who set them up. And then it says, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him, is what the people who worshiped him said. So that, that prominence, that global dominance was lost in 1798. But today that influence is moving more and more towards that wound, finding its healing. It's not quite there, but it certainly is moving towards that process. Here's just a few brief examples. Uh, in 2015, do you guys remember whenever the Pope actually traveled to the United States of America and addressed the joint houses of Congress? This has never happened before. We are a Protestant nation founded upon Protestant principles. And the fact that this happened is a really, really big deal prophetically. It's the first time that it had ever taken place. In fact, just 60 years ago, many people were freaking out over the fact that a Catholic was about to be elected as the president of the United States of America. And again, it's because we have such a rich Protestant heritage as a nation. And the concern was that the president of our free country, of our Protestant country, would potentially be beholden to a religious institution's leader, to the Pope himself, while governing our nation. And there's dissonance there. This was something that was deeply concerning to many American citizens only 60 years ago, not that long ago. So here's another picture of him addressing joint houses of Congress. The very next day, uh, the very next day, he was addressing the United Nations. And uh, right after he addressed Congress, and it's interesting that he actually, the, the Vatican, uh, the Holy See, they actually have access and a, a non-member status with the United Nations, which is very rare. This doesn't happen, but they're given a special privilege that many would not be whenever they're not really representing their citizenship. It's literally just the home base of a religious institution. 
So again, that, that idea of that mortal wound being healed, we're moving in that direction. There is a global prominence and uplifting that seemed impossible in 1799, if you will, right? There's clearly been a massive resurgence being given political jurisdiction and civil jurisdiction on top of their religious power. So going back to Revelation chapter 13, it says, And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? So the Bible here is saying that the first beast will grow to such a dominant global power that the entire world will marvel after it and eventually worship at its bidding. It will eventually receive help from the second beast of Revelation 13 to get to its end goal. But I want to address one more aspect about the mark of the beast that we see in Revelation chapter 12. It doesn't directly speak to the mark of the beast, but it speaks to how it's going to work. Okay, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, it says this, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who does what? Who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, this verse coincides with many other scriptures that show that Satan's primary tactic is to use deception to get people to do something they normally wouldn't do. For instance, when he tempts Adam and Eve, he doesn't show up in a red t-shirt that says, I'm on a crash course with destruction, who's coming with me? That's not how it worked, right? He wasn't wearing a red leotard with horns and a pitchfork. He's appearing as something that he's not, implying something that isn't true. He's not directly attacking God. He's using deception and undertones. You see that? Okay, that's the way that he's operated. So the way the Mark of the Beast crisis is going to operate will be very similar, right? It's not going to be a circumstance where they say, hey, we're offering free Mark of the Beast stickers, sign up today, right? That's not how this is going to work. It's not going to look like that. People who are being deceived don't know that they're being deceived. So if the mark of the beast that aligns people with the Antichrist power was a literal, physical mark, you wouldn't be deceived. Does that make sense? It's not going to look like that. It's not a tattoo or something like that or a microchip or whatever. You would know it's there. The devil would be better suited to get people to do something that they were unaware they were partaking of and it was causing them harm. Wouldn't that be a much smarter route to go? And it would be even more advantageous to make them feel that what they're doing was actually honoring God and unifying them with their fellow man, which is how he's going to do this. And since the beast itself is a religious institution, its mark is going to be an apparently religious observance. If you remember from our previous presentation in 2 Thessalonians 2, he sets himself up in the temple of God claiming that he is God, right? It's a clearly religious institution that we've already identified. Now, let's go into the second beast. That's the first beast in Revelation 13. There's a second beast, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast, but where is it coming out of? Out of the earth. Out of the earth. So this is not coming up out of a populous area. It's coming up in a sparse area, an underpopulated area. And he had two horns like a lamb, but how did he speak? Like a dragon. Like a dragon. Okay, so the land beast here doesn't come out of the waters the first beast does. It's going to come up from an unpopulated area. And it's very interesting that the last statement that's made about the sea beast before we get to this verse in verse 11 is found in verse 10. And it says that he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. 
Like what goes around comes around, right? The very one who was leading people into captivity for 1260 years will go into captivity, and that totally happened in 1798. But it's an interesting statement of transition because as the Pope is going into captivity, another beast is rising to prominence. So we've got a marker time-wise on when this is happening. Sometime around 1798, towards the late 1700s, another beast is coming up into prominence. Okay, that's the point that we're seeing here. Now, what nation rose from obscurity in the late 1700s that has moved on to global dominance? The United States of America, absolutely. And it has the characteristics of a lamb, because first of all, lambs are how old? They're young, right? They're tiny, they're young. The United States does not have a rich, multi-generational heritage right, in the 1700s. They literally have just begun in their infancy. They don't have the history that countries in Europe do that preceded the time of Christ and so forth. So it's a young nation. That's the first thing we can gather from this. And it says it has two horns. Now, horns are a sign of rulership in Bible prophecy. We saw that with the four horns that were on uh, the he-goat in Daniel chapter 8 representing Greece, those four generals who ruled after Alexander the Great died. And then there was the little horn that was ruling right? The papacy. So these these talk about some form of rulership, these two little horns. We have that much that we understand. The two governing principles, the reason why there's two horns here, the two governing principles came from a Christian worldview, and they were the intentional separation of church and state, right? This nation was birthed at the tyrannical abuses that happened in Europe, the abuses of kings and the abuses of popes. So when they established the United States of America, it was very important that we have freedom from a pope, we're a Protestant nation, and freedom from a king, we're a republic, right? We vote for who represents us. We're not going to be ruled by some monarch and some multi-generational leadership from this guy's kid to this guy's kid to this guy's kid. No, 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 no. We want something different. We want a say in who rules over us. Right? Because there was terrible tyranny during the Dark Ages by kings and by popes. So these are the foundational principles upon which this new country would be governed. But the Bible here says that it will eventually speak like a dragon. Now, the dragon is who? The The devil and Satan. So that very innocent, young country that was founded upon the principles of republicanism and Protestantism is eventually going to speak in ways that are more reflective of the dragon. Force, coercion, dominance, right? So the very principles it wants espoused, right? It's going to start embracing. Now, what we've seen in our previous presentations on the Antichrist was that the language of the dragon was selfish, self-elevating, and even blasphemous. And it eventually leads to oppression and coercion. The same thing will happen in this country. The United States is going to act like the first beast and the dragon and abandon its view of liberty of conscience and force its people to worship the first beast and its image and mark. That's what Bible prophecy is talking about here. This is heavy stuff, beloved. Right? I'm a man who's a patriot, who appreciates this country. But Bible prophecy has said this is the direction this nation will go. Back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. The dragon, again the devil, was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, the woman mentioned in Revelation chapter 12 is a pure woman. She's dressed in white. She's clothed with the sun. She's standing on the moon. She has a garland of the 12 stars. And it's implying that all those means that bring light unto this earth are what she's garbed with. It's purity. 
God is depicting a pure church. He's depicting his church as a woman, which happens all throughout Scripture. We actually alluded to this, actually, in our statement or our our presentation on the second coming. If you remember that the church is represented by the Shulamite in Song of Solomon, by a woman. The church is represented by uh, the woman or the girl in Ezekiel chapter 16, right, that was cast by the side of the road and became a beautiful woman. He was speaking of his church. That's what's happening in Revelation 12. In contrast to that is the harlot woman of Revelation 17, the Antichrist power. You have a pure church, and then you have an apostate church. This is what's being alluded to here, this this pure church and the offspring of that church. It's speaking of the early church initially uh, that Jesus established. But now this is referring to the, the, the remaining faithful at the end of verse history. It says the devil is making war with them who keep the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those people who still stand to the foundational principles of the church when it was first founded, as Jesus resurrected, there's still going to be people at the end of time who reflect and honor and cherish those same teachings and principles. And those people are, are the, the devil is at war with them. And one of the characteristics of them is they keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. That includes the Sabbath, by the way. When it says they keep the commandments of God, they are a Sabbath-keeping people. So they will partner together, these two beasts in Revelation 13, to push for worship in a way that's contrary to the way that God commanded His people to worship, right? Because those two beasts are directly tied to the dragon, we're told, and the dragon is at war with God's people who keep His commandments and hold true to His teachings. So these two entities will also be at war with the same people. Are you with me so far? That's what Bible prophecy is telling us. So going back to Revelation chapter 13, it says, I saw one of his, the first beast's heads, as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. All the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? Okay, the word worship being employed here. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. But then it gives this kind of... uh, Specific phrase after that, this identifying marker, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Who do you think that represents? The saved or the lost? The lost. Those who are not walking in God's will. Those who are not walking in the truth of God's word. All are going to worship the beast with the exception of those who are keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Those people standing true to God's teachings at the end of time. So this is a big deal. This is a global crisis that is soon to come. So the sea beast is going to push for worship and the entire world, apart from those who've given their undivided loyalty to God, will not only follow this beast, but worship in the way that it commands that they worship. Continuing to verse 12 of Revelation 13, speaking of the second beast, the land beast, the United States of America, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The United States is going to be pushing and forcing people and directing them to worship the first beast. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, to bring it into life, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This will become a matter of life and death. Fidelity to God and to his word will eventually become a matter of life and death. And the central issue of the mark of the beast is worship. Therefore, there must be a difference between the call to worship the beast and the call to worship God. Does that make sense? 
If that's what the beasts are pushing for, is for worship, then that means that they're calling for a worship that would God not put them in the same camp as God would have them to be in. It just, it just can't be the same. They can't be harmonious. Continuing to verse 16, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So there are financial difficulties people will go through. They eventually won't be able to buy or sell unless they receive the mark of the beast, as it says, in the right hand or the forehead. Now, interestingly enough, all of the worship that's mentioned in Revelation 13 is framed in a negative context. But the whole point of worship is to be the glad response to the goodness of the gospel, right? Right? Imagine what a church service would be right, be like if somebody came up to you with a revolver and said, worship now. Holding a gun to your head and saying, worship now. Would that be a true worshipful experience? No. No. The true heart of worship is birthed out of freedom. It's birthed out of love. It's birthed out of gratitude. And you cannot have freedom, love, and gratitude in a context of force, manipulation, and violence. Amen? Amen. It's not possible, but that's what's being asked for here. Okay? So all these mentions of worship are in a negative context. It's on the basis of force or threat. But once we get to Revelation 14, we find that there's one positive reference to worship. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to repeat a text that we looked at in our presentation on the topic of the Sabbath. And it's in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, speaking of the Antichrist power, the little horn. It says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the same to the Most High, and then what's he going to do? They're going to intend to change times and law. And then the saints are given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So there's a direct act of the beast to seek to change God's law and times. Now, there's only one of God's laws that has to do with time. And what law is that? The fourth commandment, the Sabbath, right? And it's clearly a documented act, as we discuss in our Sabbath presentation. We walk through all the, the, the um, Protestant theologians from different denominations testifying that there's no change of the Sabbath in the Bible. And even the Catholic Church itself makes those claims. Here's a few of those, Okay. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 4, page 153. The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Now, if you remember, they removed the commandment regarding the uh, worshiping idols. And so everything got moved up one. But the nine commandments doesn't have the same ring to it as the ten commandments. So they split the tenth into two. Don't cover your neighbor's wife, number nine. Don't cover your neighbor's stuff, number ten. That's how they made that work. So when they say the third commandment, you and I would view that as the fourth commandment, right? And their Bibles actually read that way as the fourth commandment is the Sabbath. But how they have it in catechisms is different. So there's another question from the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, another quote. They ask, which, which is the Sabbath day? The answer they give is, Saturday is the Sabbath day. There's a logical follow-up question. Well, then why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church and the Council of Laodicea transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Okay, so the church claims to have authority to change it. But But the reason they use is kind of circular. Well, what authority do you have to change it? The fact that we changed it, <laughs> which is kind of different, but that's, that's what they said, okay? I'm going to skip that one for time's sake. Uh, yeah, so here's this one. This is from C.F. Thomas. He was a chancellor of Cardinal Gibbons. It says, of course the Catholic Church claims the change was her act, and the act is a? Moral. 
a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. And that language is super important for this evening's presentation. Okay, this is from the Catechism Explained by Canon Kefirata. The Sabbath was Saturday, not Sunday. The church altered the observance of the Sabbath to the observance of Sunday. Protestants must, rather, must be rather puzzled by the keeping of Sunday when God distinctly said, keep holy the Sabbath day. The word Sunday does not come anywhere in the Bible. So without knowing it, they are observing the authority of the Catholic Church. This is a regular argument, by the way, of the Catholic Church against Protestants who claim to say, no, 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 you guys are wrong. You should be keeping the doing what the Bible says in the Bible only. And their very logical response is, if you're going to follow the Bible in the Bible only, why are you following a day that we created that has nothing to do with the Bible? And it's a really, really important point that we really have to wrestle with. Because if you're going to claim to bling the Bible and the Bible only, but you're keeping a day that has no biblical foundation and is actually honoring the authority of the church that you're protesting, there's dissonance there. Are you with me? Yeah. And so they have a right to make this type of statement to, the, to Protestants. So history is clear and the church itself is clear that this is what has happened. So the mark of the beast is going to be tied to this change. The Roman Catholic Church is going to push for the world to keep Sunday under auspices that would be on the surface, seeming as if they're going to benefit mankind in some form or fashion. In fact, there was a, um, an encyclical that the most recent pope wrote, Laudato Si, I think is what it's referred to, that, that talks about this very idea of preserving the environment, that the world should be keeping Sunday, resting on Sunday for the purpose of preserving the environment, that we're, we're using too many resources. So if you stop working, stop buying, stop doing things, give the world a day off, a day of a break. There's also some emphasis that's put for, for a day of family, right? Stop doing things on Sunday and just have family time. This push has already been existent for some time now. Uh, the most recent encyclical alludes to that. So the United States is going to assist them in this with their laws and penalties for the dissidents. And so what's God going to do about this? This is what Bible prophecy says. This is what they're saying is going to happen. But what is God doing about that? The good news is he's not sitting on his hands. Amen? Amen. He's warning people. Just as you're hearing that this evening, this is a fulfillment of the three angels' messages, those messages of mercy and warning to the world to not receive the mark of the beast and to not go through that process. Okay, so here's the first angel's message. Revelation chapter 14, beginning of verse 6, and we'll also read the second angel's message. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to who? Everyone, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So God's not sitting on his hands and saying, Oh man, I hope my people aren't deceived and it works out for them. No, God is sending intentional messengers. Now, these are not three literal angels that he's speaking about here. Angels represent messengers in this prophetic context. God is sending messengers to warn the world. You're bearing the fruit of that right now. You're, you are actually receiving that benefit that God in his great mercy is sharing this message to ensure that people know the truth and can make a good decision in the face of the crisis that's to come. That's why you're here, the providence of God to hear this very warning. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. We talked about that on Wednesday night the current tense of the pre-Avent judgment, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So God's primary concern is for people to be saved. Amen. Amen. 
God wants people to be saved. So he sends these three messengers of mercy to the world in response to what the beasts are doing in Revelation 13. So chronologically, you see God, uh, there, there are the messenger, or the, I'll phrase it this way, the beasts in Revelation chapter 13 are warring against God's people and God's truth. And in response to that chaos in Revelation 14, God is giving a message in opposition to what's happening by these two beasts. This is what's taking place in Revelation chapter 14. And he's preaching the message of a suffering Messiah who's come to take away the sins of the world. And in response to that gospel appeal, he's calling his people to reverence him, to fear God and give glory to him, and to worship him on his holy Sabbath by directly quoting from the Sabbath commandment. Right? He says, and worship him who made the heaven, the earth, and the seas, and the springs of water. That's a direct quote from the Sabbath commandment. So part of the message of the first angel is calling the world to worship God on his holy day, calling them to worship him his way on his day, alerting the world that a judgment is happening right now where God is trying to remove all record of your sin from the universe so that you can stand before him, right, without fear. And he's preaching the gospel, the message of a suffering Messiah. This is a beautiful message. This is a great and a timely message in the context of oppression and coercion that's happening to people, and people are actually thinking they're honoring God by doing something that wasn't raised up by God at all. Do you see the danger here? And God's saying, whoa, 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 before you do that, let, I want you to hear what I have to say about this. This isn't okay. And that Babylon's going down. This system cannot and will not last. It's going to be destroyed, and it's leading people to destruction. Get out of there. He repeats the third angel's message in Revelation chapter 18, and he tells people specifically, come out of her, my people. God has people who are currently within the confines of some form of Babylonian influence, and he's telling them, get out of there. That thing is going down. Come home to the safety of my teachings, of my truth, and of my love and care for you. So the Sabbath is being given as the alternative in regards to the worship that the beasts are pushing in Revelation chapter 13. Do you see that? They're calling for worship one way, and God is saying, no, 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 that's not when to worship, and that's not how to worship. You don't worship based out of force. You worship on the Sabbath as a memorial of the fact that you're my beloved, that I created you, that I redeemed you, and I've taken upon myself the responsibility to transform you. Remember that from our Sabbath presentation? That's what's being said here. God is calling people to remember how valuable they are by worshiping Him on the Sabbath and basking in that. That's where true worship is found, in gratitude for what God has already done. And then He warns of a religious system that's at war with the everlasting gospel by teaching things that distort His character and the plan of salvation and that has influenced others to do the same. Other nations are drinking of the wine of Babylon. So God in His mercy is saying, get out of there. Right? You don't need to pray to saints. You can come directly to me. You don't need to confess to a priest. You can come directly to me. You don't have to work your way to heaven. Jesus is the righteousness you need. Are you with me? So this system is at war with the gospel. That's why it's dangerous. We're not talking about members of the church. We don't even know the motives of leaders in the church. What we do know is the theology and the system itself is doomed to fail. Are you with me?
That's the purpose of this presentation is to make that clear. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. So the third angel's message warns of the coming crisis that we're addressing right now, the mark of the beast. And in verse 9, we're warned of worshiping the beast, which again implies that we would be worshiping as they say we should worship. And there's a danger in that. And we're also warned to not receive the beast's mark on our forehead or on their hand. Now, what does it mean by in the forehead or in the hand? Is it a literal physical mark? Well, we've already mentioned the fact that the key to deception is that people don't know that they're being deceived. So it can't be physical. And we also know that based upon our next text. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, there's language used here that John, who's writing the book of Revelation, would understand as a Jew. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart. In your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That's a New Covenant Christian experience, by the way, right? God writing His laws in your heart and in your mind. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, which is where? Your forehead. Your forehead. Same language that's used for the mark of the beast is implied here. That the law of God should be something that's on your hand and on your forehead. Now, Moses is using metaphorical language here to show that the things that God wants to be a part of you are, are, are fully a part of you in your heart. That's why Jesus says you should eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's not a cannibal. What he's saying is to take it in, let it become a part of you, right? Because when you eat something, it even goes to the cellular level, right? When you eat and drink things, they bless you at the very essence of your full being physiologically. Jesus is saying when you take this in, let it become a part of you. It's the same idea here. Let it be the very essence of who you are and how you do life, right? But in Jesus' day, people took this literally. And so Jewish leaders would actually have a little wooden casket with the scroll inside of it, the law of God, like this little modest crown. But that wasn't the purpose of it. They misunderstood. They'd rock with a scroll tied around their wrist. They, they literally did not understand what God intended. Right? And, and we see that all throughout the Gospels. Jesus continually having these face palm moments where you guys are not getting it. Like, you missed the entire point. You were celebrating a law I didn't even give to protect a law that I did give while not keeping the law that I gave because you're trying to kill me who gave it. it, it they missed the entire point. It, don't ask me to say that again. I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> Here's the point. The forehead to a Hebrew mind reflects what you believe and the hand reflects what you do. It's metaphorical language. It's what you believe and it's what you do. That's what's being alluded to here. So if the mark is not physical, what does it symbolize? Again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. So again, what's implied is that what I do with my hand is what I do, right? My hand represents what I do. So the forehead implies what someone believes. The hand implies what someone does. So it's not a literal and physical mark. It's symbolic of what people believe and what they do. This means then that people can receive the mark of the beast even if they don't intellectually agree with what's being pushed. Some of you may be thinking, well, 
that's all well and good, but what about like atheists or, or Jews or other people who keep the seventh day or believe the seventh day is actually a day of worship? But how, how would they receive the mark of the beast? How are they going to worship on Sunday or you know, feel, how are they going to respond to being forced to worship on Sunday? What well, you can receive the mark of the beast by not intellectually believing it, but going through with it just so you don't die or lose your financial privileges. Are you with me? People can receive the mark without intellectually believing that Sunday truly is a holy day by just doing what's asked to save their lives or to get out of trouble financially and otherwise. This is the danger of the mark of the beast crisis. Whether you believe it or not, it's coming. And the question is, what will you do? Because what you do determines whether you receive the mark or not. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the point. So if you obey to stay out of trouble, you're still going to receive the mark, even if you don't believe that this thing is actually true. And so in contrast to the mark of the beast is the seal of God. This is what is in contrast to the mark of the beast. Revelation chapter 7, verse 2 and 3 says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having what? The seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until what has happened? So before the, the winds of destruction are unleashed upon this earth, God is saying, don't do that until my servants are sealed and where? In their foreheads. Now, what does the forehead represent? What you believe, right? In, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, this language is used again. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So twice here it mentions of the seal of God only in the forehead. Did you notice that? The seal of God doesn't go in the hand. It only goes in the forehead. So just doing the outward motions is not what God is seeking. He seeks a full understanding and a full surrender. And those who worship Him in spirit and truth receive the seal of God, and that seal is the Sabbath. This is speaking the value into the human beings that God so longed for them to embrace and receive and enjoy. And it's in direct contrast to the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is coerced and forced Sunday worship. The seal of God is an invitation to true worship with the true God who's your creator, redeemer, and the one who's promised to transform and grow you. Are you with me? That's the seal of God. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12 shows us this. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So the seal of God is the Sabbath. It's a sign of His creative, redemptive, and transforming authority on earth, as we learned before in our presentation on the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, and Ezekiel 20, verse 12, right here. The words sign, seal, and mark are used interchangeably. Okay, those are used interchangeably. So it's what shows us our values we discussed before and reminds us that we are God's property, right? When you put a seal on something, you're generally declaring, this is mine. I vouch for this. I'm speaking through this or for this, or I'm declaring this as mine, right? When you sign a deed or seal a deed, God created us and he redeemed us. We're twice his. He has every right to seal his people, but only those who choose to allow themselves to be sealed. God can't seal the whole world because God doesn't work in a Revelation 13 way. He doesn't coerce, take, and force. He only responds to love. 
right? He only responds through freedom, and that's what has to happen here. So keeping Sunday in place of Sabbath denies their intrinsic moral value. In fact, the Catholic Church denies a literal seven-day creation and instead teaches that we were created through the means of theistic evolution. That means that God created through means of destruction and disease over countless years. Well, that, that's not harmonious. First of all, the Bible doesn't say that. And second of all, how can you teach that God would create through the means of death whenever death is a result of sin? That's implying that sin preceded creation. Are you understanding? This is an affront again to the teachings of the gospel and the fact that the, God, the very way in which God created man communicates the value he places upon him. And that's an assault on that. Do you see that? That teaching is an assault on that. And keeping Sunday instead of Saturday is also an assault on that because Sunday is man's day, not God's day. And that's where this whole number six comes into the whole process. Six is a representation of man. Seven is a representation of God and his character. So it's in direct opposition to the Sabbath commandment and the message that it gives us of our value. So we see the big issues at play, but now let's go back to how one receives the mark. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, it says this, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So what makes you a servant is yielding yourself in obedience to someone. The very act of obedience marks you as their servant. Does that make sense? When they demand of you to do something and you say, okay, I'll do that, that's what marks you as their servant. So what you do identifies whose servant you are. So here's where this becomes a relevant issue. In Revelation 13, the beast says, worship my image. But in Revelation 14, God's saying, don't worship that image, worship me. Whoever you respond to when this crisis comes identifies whose servant you are. Does that make sense? Whoever you respond to marks you as whose servant you are. So if I do what the beast said, what marks me? That very act of obedience itself. It's the same with disobeying. The mark is an act of obedience. Jesus was actually tempted at this level, by the way. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, he didn't fall, but he was tempted. And he said to him, all these things, the devil takes Jesus and shows him the kingdoms of the world in Jesus' temptation soon after his baptism. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So the devil is demanding that Jesus worship him. Is that Revelation 13 language or what, huh? And he says, worship me. And he's using coercion. I'll give you this stuff. He's trying to bait him and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship who? The Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Jesus said, "You, God alone should you serve or worship. By the way, He's directly quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which is the very place where we learned about the hand and the forehead. Okay, So by worshiping you serve, Jesus' disobedience showed that He did not honor Satan's authority. In fact, even if Jesus never says a word, His actions of not bowing down marked Him as God's servant. The mark is enacted of obedience, and Jesus connects worship and service in verse 10. Why? Because if you worship the way that Satan says, then you're obeying him. So if Jesus had obeyed, he would have become Satan's servant. And he actually gives a parable that illustrates this later in Matthew 21. Listen to this. Jesus says, what do you think? 
A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. So the son says, No, I'm not going. But he realizes, You know, I probably should. The second says, I'm not going. Okay? Uh, sorry. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I will go. But he doesn't go. Then Jesus asked the question, Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots are entering the kingdom of God before you. And he's speaking to religious leaders. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Here's the point that Jesus is making. At the end of the day, when the coming crisis comes on the scene, someone's profession is not going to be what matters. It's what they choose to do when it matters most. Are you with me? What you profess does not matter when this test comes. It's what you choose to do and where your heart is in making those choices. Going back to Revelation chapter 14, the third angel's message now, uh, or yeah, continuing into the third angel's message, we had started part of it. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. And we talked about this before. This isn't saying the wicked burn forever. We've already addressed that. How many people in this room can testify to the fact that when you're apart from Christ, you don't have rest? There is no true rest for your soul, right? You don't have peace. It doesn't work. That's what's being said here. And they're not keeping Sabbath, right? Like they, they're not finding that true rest that's only found in Christ and his accomplished work on our behalf. That's what's being said here. Then it says in verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here again are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. So in Revelation 12, that remnant, right? That, that faithful band of people at the close of time who look like the early church and what they believe and practice, those people kept the commandments of God in the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 12, 17. Now, speaking of the saints at the end of time in Revelation 14 and verse 12, very similar characteristics. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We talked about the faith of Jesus in our presentation on the cross, if you remember. Okay? So those who receive the mark are clearly not keeping the commandments of God or the faith of Jesus. You see that, right? And those who do not receive the mark are clearly keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, right? Those who, who are receiving the mark don't keep the commandments. And those who don't receive the mark are keeping the commandments. So clearly the mark is in opposition to the commandments of God, right? Here's the big distinction at the end of time. The beasts of Revelation 13 directly attack all four of the first commandments that deal with our relationship with God. Should have no other gods before me, you're worshiping the devil while thinking you're worshiping God, right? Through the deception. Number two, they set up an image to the beast. The second commandment denounces the use of images and idolatry. The third thing that is mentioned is this idea of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, It's all about blasphemy, that's the language coming out of the mouth of the first beast, right? Speaking blasphemous things. And then the fourth commandment is regarding the Sabbath, and they claim we have changed it. Literally, the first beast has attacked all of the commandments that directly relate to God once you get to Revelation chapter 13. All four of them. It's in direct opposition to the commandments of God, okay? Now, to be clear, no one has the mark of the beast today. I haven't said that and never would say that. No one has that today. 
But a time is coming when Sunday worship is going to be forced upon people with economic penalties and even death threats. And when that time comes, that's when the mark of the beast becomes a thing. It's not a thing right now. There are many people who are sincerely worshiping God on Sunday and will find themselves in heaven. But when this crisis comes at the close of earth's history, this is the issue, guys. It's the separating issue for those who are alive on earth at that time. It's that serious. And those who choose to worship on Sunday and receive the mark of the beast will not find themselves in that celestial city. But those who worship God, right, those who worship God in obedience to his commandments will find themselves there. And again, this is not, this is not salvation by works. We've never taught that in these meetings and never would teach that. Worship is a response of gratitude to the accomplished work of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what we're talking about, okay? There's a big difference. So through the means of laws by the state carrying out the bidding of the church, that's when this thing becomes the real deal. And what we choose to do on that day is the final test for humanity on where our allegiance lies. Will you stand for the Bible and the Bible only or tradition? And it's interesting because this was the very point that was pushed home to Martin Luther in the midst of his protest by an apologist from the Mother Church. So Martin Luther had an initial debate with Johannes Eck, Dr. Johannes Eck, who was an apologist for the Catholic Church. He was trying to debate with Martin Luther to show him you're wrong. And they debated back and forth initially in person. And then what eventually happened was it continued in writing. And one of those charges that Johannes Eck levels towards Martin Luther was a big one. He says this, If, however, the Roman church has had power to change the Sabbath of the Bible into Sunday and to command Sunday keeping, why should it not have this power concerning other holy days and observances? If you omit the latter, the liturgical holy days, and turn from the church to scriptures alone, then you must keep the Sabbath with the Jews, which has been kept from the beginning of the world. Do you understand the logic he's using here? Martin, you're claiming that you believe in scripture and scripture only, and you're protesting some of the practices of the church. But if you're going to protest some of the practices of the church, you're going to have to protest all of them. You cannot keep Sunday and at the same time be declaring sola scriptura. There's dissonance there, Martin Luther. That's what Johannes Eck is saying. And there's no written response from Martin Luther on this point, unfortunately. Um, Now, if you read some of his writings later in life, he had some pretty gnarly things to say about the Jews. He became more anti-Semitic as time went on. It's an unfortunate circumstance. But here's the point. It's very strong logic. You cannot claim to believe the Bible and the Bible only and keep Sunday. You can't have both. You've got to choose one or the other. That's the logic. If Sola Scriptura is your Reformation cry, you must return to the Bible Sabbath or you must reject Sola Scriptura and accept Rome's claim to determine divine truth evidenced by her power to change the Sabbath to Sunday. Do you follow that logic? All right. So here's the point. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus says this. Someone comes up to his disciples and says, do you, uh, you know, do you pay taxes or not? And eventually Jesus' response to this whole scenario is, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There's a line of distinction here. The very idea, I want to read a, a couple of quotes. I was reading a book the other night that was really helpful for me. Listen to this. The very idea of civil government is of God. And he's ordained civil rulers over this realm. Romans 13, I believe, talks about that. But not to rule over his realm. 
He has drawn the line of distinction between the two and has ordained the powers that be to rule over things civil and leave him to rule over things moral. When Caesar confines his actions to his own sphere, every Christian is enjoined by God to be obedient. That's a part of his Christianity. There should be no one more loyal to civil government when it is in the sphere of which God ordained it than the Christian. He should be the model citizen, but when Caesar tries to put himself in the place of God, he makes bad work. He cannot take the place of God. God says, stay where I put you and I command every one of my followers to obey you, but do not come over into my realm for you cannot carry on my government. Stay in your sphere and you will have every one of my subjects to be your subjects and mine too. You see the line of distinction there? The basic principles for our civil well-being are one thing, but when the government starts legislating morality, that's a whole nother thing. And it always ends in a bad scenario, okay? Here's two examples of this and then we'll close. In Daniel chapter three, we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had already been promoted based upon their faithfulness in Daniel 1 and Daniel 2 to higher leadership within the kingdom. Daniel also was given this. We saw that in Daniel 2 in our first presentation together, if you were there. So they're given this promotion. And in Daniel 2, the king sees a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay at the bottom. That metal statue of Daniel 2 representing the kingdoms of the world. King Nebuchadnezzar was told, you, O king, are this head of gold. But then he's told a kingdom inferior to yours is coming after you. Now, how's that going to sound to a proud man who's leading the known world at that stage? That someone's going to take over who's inferior to you? Nah. And so he eventually, and he's convicted, right? He falls on his face before Daniel and says, your God is the guy. But he loses sight of that. Maybe you've been there. You're convicted of something and you find yourself not walking in that conviction. That was Nebuchadnezzar's story. He goes through two more convicting circumstances before he finally seals the deal and is heaven bound by God's grace. Amen? Amen. I'm thankful that God bears long with people because I wouldn't be here doing ministry were it not for the fact that God bore long with me. But I say this in Daniel 3 because he, he loses sight of that. And so he makes an entire statue of gold, but he doesn't just make a statue for his pleasure. He calls all the people in his kingdom to come and worship that statue. They play the music and there's a decree that's given. If you do not bow to this image, you will die. Well, does that sound like Revelation 13? Yeah. You better believe it. If you don't bow, you will die. And these three guys, like three obdurate weeds on the plain of Dura, refuse to bow. They stand. And news gets to the king and he says, well, what is this craziness? I'm going to play the music again and let's try it again. And they say, you don't need to play the music again. We're not bowing. It's not happening. Thanks, but no thanks. And he's so furious, he makes them heat the fire seven times hotter. And the very people who threw them into that fire are destroyed by that fire. It's so hot. And these guys are walking around in the fire. You can read this in Daniel 3 on your own as a homework assignment. I'm just summarizing for time's sake, if you like. But it's powerful narrative. These guys are walking around in the fire free. They're not tied up anymore. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, didn't we throw three guys in there? Uh, Yes, king. Well, then why are there four men in there? And why does the fourth guy look like the son of God? Now, did he have any of those, you know, children's coloring books that tell you what Jesus looks like? No, but he knew you cannot have an encounter with a living Christ and not know. He knew there's something different here. And that's the son of God. And he says, get out of here. And so they walk gingerly out of that fire. They don't even smell like smoke. They're not burned. 
And he says, truly, your God is the God of gods. I'm going to read a little commentary on this. This is what God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar in this scenario. You are out of your place. You are my servant, and I gave you authority, but not to exercise in my realm. And any command you give contrary to my commands, I will bring to confusion. And the lesson for us is in this day. When Caesar gets out of his place and steps across the line that divides things civil from things moral, God says, get back in your place. God always stands for his people in those moments. And we see that in Daniel 3, don't we? God stood for his people. It wasn't just clear that they were unharmed. It was also clear to the enemies of God that Jesus was with his people in that trial. Amen? And that's going to happen again, beloved. Jesus will be with his people in that trial. We don't need to be afraid of that day. If we stand for God, he's already standing for us. Amen? Amen. Happens again in Daniel 6. It's a different kingdom now. The Medo-Persians are leading. And in Daniel chapter 6, they can't find anything to get this guy in trouble. They hate his guts. Some of the fellow co-rulers of, you know, I don't know what their role was, prime ministers or administrators, whatever they were, they were trying to get Daniel in trouble. The problem is he shows up to work on time every day. He's never, tur- he's never cut any corners, right? He eats with perfect technique. Like the guy does nothing wrong. He gets everything right. And they realize the only way we can get him in trouble is by making worshiping his God illegal. Would to God that someone could say that about me, <laughs> right? I try to be a faithful worker, but I got my stuff. But that's a whole nother level, these guys. And so Daniel, he prays anyway. They, they make this decree that if anyone prays to anybody other than the king for the next series of days, they must die and be thrown in the lion's den. And the king says, sure, I'll sign that. Not thinking that his beloved Daniel is about to get in trouble. Daniel does what he always does. He opens his window. He prays towards Jerusalem. The guys rat him out. They tell the king, didn't you say no one should pray? Yes. And according to the Medes and Persians, nothing could change? Yes. Well, guess what? Your little pet over here doesn't care. What are you going to do about it, king? And he tries until the going down of the sun to save Daniel, and he realizes, I can't. The laws of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. And so he says, Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will help you. He believed by faith that Daniel somehow would be spared. And that's exactly what happens. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. He's untouched by the lions. Maybe he wrestled with them and played with them just for fun. We don't know. But he wasn't killed. He wasn't mauled. He wasn't eaten. And he's delivered. And eventually those guys are thrown in. And it's again this very statement. Here's another commentary on this. Daniel 6. What? Had Daniel not broken the law? Yes. But the king was out of his place in making it. And therefore, it was no offense to go contrary to it. And God showed this to be so. So what's the lesson? God is saying, Caesar, keep out of my realm. Keep on your side of the fence. Because the moment you come over here, I give my subjects perfect right to disobey you. And I will stand by them in it. And he did. Here's the point. When the church takes the power of the civil government to aid in anything that pertains to the things of God, it's a published confession before God, before all heaven and before man, a confession that Christianity should blush to make, that it has lost the power of God that he has given it. Christ said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Who would exchange that power for the paltry power of Caesar? Have nothing to do with it, let alone that cursed union between church and state, which has wrought the misery of the ages and has brought the blood of thousands of pages of history and slain millions of martyrs. Have you not seen enough of it to understand the ruin it will cause? Will you not say God rather than Caesar, religion rather than hypocrisy? 
Civil government cannot touch religion at any point. It matters not where it is without involving a mixture which will bring trouble to both the church and the state. Render therefore the things to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. God will bless, sustain, and keep everyone that does this, no matter at what sacrifice. Houses, friends, property, obey God rather than men. Amen? Amen. And everyone who desires to make his religion practical is eagerly urged to keep these principles in mind. That's the point, beloved. When, the, when Caesar oversteps his bounds and starts legislating morality, we have to say this far and no further. And trust that in the same way that God stood for Daniel, and in the same way that God stood for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he will stand for his people in the crisis that's to come. Amen? Amen? There's a faithful God in heaven who doesn't want anyone to be lost. And the reason why he gave those three angels' messages, those messages of mercy, in direct response to the actions of what's happening in Revelation 13 is to ensure that none need be lost because everyone can respond to the everlasting gospel. Everyone can choose to walk in obedience to the commandments of God by the strength and accomplishments of Jesus Christ and His merits alone. Everyone can have that. But what choice will you make? That's the question. Are you with me tonight? That's the question. Has this made sense? Yes or no? Have we seen from the Bible these things? All right. So, As we've been doing, we'll have a chance for you to respond to appeals, then you'll record those appeals. But let's respond first, so you don't have to fill out your cards just yet. Just just think through what's being said and make your decisions. Here's the first thing, and you can just respond by raising your hands. I understand that the Bible teaches that the mark of the beast is legislated and forced Sunday worship. I've seen that from the Bible tonight. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. Okay? Your hands can go down. How about this? I want the seal of God in my forehead and to walk in total obedience to God. God, I want to be fully yours and go where you're leading. I want to receive that seal today. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. Amen. Okay. How about this? If this is you, raise your hand. If you've responded earlier, you don't have to respond tonight. It's up to you. But I'd like to give my life to Jesus. I recognize that this world is falling apart at the seams, and my only safety, my only surety in this moment in earth's history is by trusting my story into the hands of Jesus. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. Amen. And if someone, through the course of these appeals that we've had, if you have not yet responded and would like to be baptized or rebaptized, if you haven't responded yet and that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. I'd like to be baptized or rebaptized. Okay? All right. And then um, as you've got your cards here, you can start filling those out. God's proud of you, beloved. The fact that you're coming here is evidence that God is doing something special and precious in your life. And the fact that you're hearing these difficult but poignant and pressing truths is evidence that there's a God in heaven who cares about you. Some of you are here because a seeming stranger knocked on your door. That wasn't happenstance, beloved. That's an act of God's mercy preparing you for what's to come. And don't forget that. Regardless of what happens from this day forward, I hope that you know and see that as an evidence of the fact that God loves me. That God didn't just so love the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God so loved me enough for someone to give me a personal invitation to what I heard tonight. God so loves me enough that someone knocked on my door on a day that forever changed my life. That's a gift from heaven, beloved. That's a gift from heaven. And treasure that for the rest of your lives. Amen? 
All right, so number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, those that are on your card are up here on the board. Number one, again, I understand that the Bible teaches the mark of the beast is legislated in four Sunday worship. Number two, I want the seal of God on my forehead and to walk in total obedience to Him. Number three, I want to give my life to Jesus. Number four, I'd like to be baptized or rebaptized. And then number five, if you have questions or prayer requests, put those on the back. We'd be glad to pray for you. We are praying for you. We'd love to continue to do so. Let us know what we can do. Uh, and if you'd like someone to come visit you, to pray with you, we want to know that. Because again, this is a healing community that's looking out for our community. We want to be there for you and support you in accepting and working through these things that are big. Right? You're hearing new and big stuff night after night after night. And if you need help processing that and talking through that, that's why we're here. Okay? So you can write those in the back, and then they'll pass the bucket here after we're done um, to, to turn in those cards. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's been some heavy stuff shared this evening, but I'm thankful for the fact that when your people stand for you, you stand for them no matter the dire circumstances that they face as a result of that. Lord, my own story is evidence in the hardship that I went through that you were there uh, whenever I wondered what this is going to look like. You did it for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You did it for Daniel. And God, you'll do it for us. And so I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. I want to be faithful to you even unto death if that's what it takes because you were faithful unto death for me. That having loved your own who are in the world, you truly loved us to the end of yourself. And the least that we can do is give you everything we have in response. Because true worship is an act of gratitude for the accomplished work of Christ. Not something that's forced or coerced. Thank you for this. I pray that you would forgive our sins and cover them with the blood of Jesus. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And God, that you would continue to grow and prepare us for what's to come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.